0: Has it really been 18 months, Been that we've been in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians? Eight chapters took us 18 months. That was clearly not enough time. We need more, I think, in this book, but we will move on. It was last March that we actually began our study of this small little letter. From Paul to the fledgling and beleaguered but persevering church of the ancient city of Thessalonica. The aim of the entire letter is to address a growing fragility of faith that was also leading to an evaporation of love for each other by having a correct expectation about the return of Jesus. In other words, This letter was calling us to live our life in light of the return of Jesus Christ. It's a message every generation needs to consider. Ours in particular needs to hear this. You can see the theme of the letter again back in chapter 1, verse 3. You can see these ideas played out where Paul began the letter in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. There was a strong faith in Christ. There was a growing love for each other that existed in this church, but that strong faith and that growing love also were two concerns that the Apostle Paul had for these people in this church. He was very grateful for what he saw in their faith. He was really thankful to God that they were continuing to grow in their love for one another. But there were some challenges to that faith and challenges to that love. Namely, three specific challenges that he addresses in each of the three chapters of this book. One of those challenges was an increased opposition. You see it addressed in verse 4 of chapter 1. We ourselves speak proudly among you, uh, of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. They were suffering intense persecution. They also struggled with some inaccurate instruction. That was another challenge to their faith. We see an example of that in chapter 2, verse 2. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by, watch this, a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There was inaccurate instruction about the day of the Lord in regard to their surrounding circumstances. And that led to another challenge to their faith and to their love and that was an improper isolation That was addressed in chapter 3. You see the example of it in verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all and acting like busybodies. Increased opposition, inaccurate instruction, was fostering a more fragile faith, and that improper isolation was leading to an evaporating kind of love among the church. And all three issues, all three issues, opposition, instruction, isolation, were related to one theological issue. And that one theological issue was what we refer to as eschatology. That is the study of the last things, the end times, the return of Christ. What they were thinking about and how they were applying the return of Jesus Christ to all of these challenges. The opposition, the instruction, the isolation. All of these were challenged by their thinking about eschatology. That inaccurate understanding of the events surrounding Jesus' return because of that inappropriate kind of instruction, that inaccurate instruction that they had been listening to caused them to misinterpret their place in God's plans. It caused them to misinterpret all of what was going on around them and they began to take inappropriate application of the, that wrong instruction and isolated themselves from one another. The remedy then is to make sure that you're living your life in light of the return of Christ so that your faith actually does continue to be strong in the midst of whatever comes and that your love never grows cold towards each other. Eschatology is not irrelevant, brothers and sisters. It's highly practical. In fact, we say this regularly that you you normally live out your theology. Whatever you believe dictates the way you live. So if you want to know what you believe, look at the way you live. The same is true about this one issue of eschatology. What you believe about your eschatology, we're going to see it in the way you live. We're going to see it in how you respond to the issues of life. We're going to see it in how you respond to what's going on in our world, what's going on in your circumstances, how you interact with each other are all impacted by your eschatology, what you believe about the end. It's not irrelevant. So, this letter is all about living life in light of Jesus' return so that your faith is enlarged and your love grows. Do you long for God's vindication? Is that how you see opposition to us? In the growing opposition that we see to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you salve your conscience that God will vindicate his people when he returns? Does that steady you? In all that's being said about the things of the end, do you keep pulling yourself back to what the Apostle Paul and the rest of the scriptures have taught you clearly about the end, or do you, do you isolate yourself from all that instruction about the end times because you think, well, that's irrelevant? Do you find yourself pulling away from culture? Do you find yourself pulling away from other Christians because of what's going on in our world? abandoning biblical responsibilities and the way to love one another carefully and clearly because you are fearful or you're becoming recalcitrant toward what's going on in our culture your eschatology would help you here if you have a biblical eschatology this is massively relevant for our present circumstances in our present culture We are at a fever pitch in how to think about increased opposition to Christianity in our culture. It's breeding despair in some people and revolution among others. Inaccurate instruction about the return of Christ has people either living with almost no expectation. Some people, their eschatology doesn't, they have no expectation that he will come anytime soon. Or on the other side, you have people reading everything that happens in our world into some specific event about the end. We have some who've been led to think that, well, it's the church's mission to reform government, and the government is the key to the revolution of society, and the revolution of society is the way to bring the Lord back. That's a bankrupt theology. Or there are others who interpret the present circumstances as the eschatological judgment of God and so they find themselves preparing to fight secular authorities or isolate themselves from biblical responsibilities. Again, that's a bankrupt eschatology. It doesn't grow your faith and it evaporates your love. Are we actually applying the instructions of this letter to how we think about the present in light of the end? It is application that the Apostle Paul ends with. It's what he ends with. His final comments in these three verses that we normally look at as just kind of a passing cultural conclusion to a normal letter. No, it's not that at all. He's actually urging the use of everything that he has been teaching in this letter. The very first word of this sentence is the conjunction but or you could translate it and or as it's translated here now and it actually is an indication that Paul is summing up the conclusion to everything that he has said. Paul has clearly laid out how we are to live in a way that is living in light of the return of Christ and he has some expectations that the church will use that. This whole letter was written to bolster their confidence, expand their love. So what does Paul expect this church to do with this letter? What are the expectations? How are they to apply it? What should they emphasize in a correct application of all that he's taught about how to encounter life in light of the return of Christ. That's what we want to look at. These three verses actually will yield for us four different admonitions for how we are to apply the scriptures. He's written a letter. That letter has authority scriptural authority and he ends this letter with admonitions of how they are to apply what he has written so four different admonitions for applying the bible found in these last few verses some of you are pausing to say I knew you would get something out of these three I didn't think it would be this well let me see if I can persuade you I don't think I'm making this up I think this is exactly what he intends for us to see in these final verses the first admonition for applying the scripture you could use this generally for all of scripture you could use it specifically for what he's addressed in this book the first one is this pursue the Lord's peace this is an emphasis for applying the word I want to show you that first part of verse 16 says now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance now obviously the key term in this sentence is the word peace what does Paul mean here when he uses this word now in the Bible Peace can refer to a state of harmony or it refers to good order that you have internally within yourself or one you have relationally with others. And what we need to know about peace from a biblical perspective is that peace is not merely the absence of hostility. It isn't peace until you also have the presence of tranquility. It's not just the absence of some kind of hostility, it is also the presence of a biblically defined tranquility. Peace can be the absence of war between nations, but it also has to have the existence of unity within those nations for it to be peace. Peace can refer to the absence of confusion, but it also has to include the presence of good order. Peace can refer to the absence of conflict in a personal relationship, but if it's really peace, it also has has to have the presence of true biblical harmony. Peace can refer to the absence of anxiety, but with that, if it's really peace in the absence of anxiety, there has to then be the presence of confidence. And peace can describe your circumstances, that your circumstances are at peace, or it can refer to the way your heart responds to those circumstances, whether they are tranquil or not. But I want you to notice here in the very beginning that Paul actually prays for the Thessalonians to experience this peace. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself why would he pray for peace why doesn't he just command peace just tell them to be at peace why does he pray for it because we know this to be true biblical peace is not achieved by anything natural do you believe that Biblical peace is not achieved by anything natural, but only what is supernatural, namely God Himself. That's why He prays. This is critical to keep in mind. In fact, you need to listen around you so that you can stop listening to any voice and every person or any theory who says that they have the remedy for achieving true peace in your soul, in your marriage, in your children, in your parenting, in your work environment, in your finances, in your mind, in our country, in our world, that is not God himself and God alone. Paul prays for peace and for them to experience peace because peace is only experienced in connection with God. Now, if you think about what this would mean in light of the circumstances that the Thessalonians were experiencing and that are addressed in this book, it's easy to see what he means by this. Why would he pray for God's peace? Because what were they experiencing? Increased opposition. I'm praying that you find the Lord's peace. That didn't mean that all of the opposition was just going to dissipate and go away. How are you going to respond to that? Well, if I am trusting in the ultimate vindication of God, what does that do to my heart? i I rest in it. I'm at peace. Well, what about all of the, the bad instruction that they had been receiving? Well, if you actually look at all of your circumstances and interpret them according to a right understanding of what the scripture has what does that do to your heart in regard to your circumstances? Especially in light of the coming of Christ, you don't misinterpret them, you see them rightly, you settle down. Well, what happens when you are seeing believers not following biblical responsibility in the way that they are living out the gospel. How do you love them appropriately and biblically? You come alongside to help them be back in line. So what happens to the love that you express throughout the congregation, the way we live out the gospel, you begin to see peace spread. Why? Because we're taking God's word and applying it to every situation. And what does it create then? Peace. He's praying that God will grant what only God can grant through the means that God alone has provided, meaning the scriptures, the instruction of the word, how to evaluate, biblically think, and respond to all of these chaotic circumstances. That's where you get peace. Now, I want to focus on this just for a little bit and break this down and leave it a little bit further. Look at the details of this prayer. For peace, and what it says about the exclusive nature of Jesus Christ in relation to the presence of peace. And I say the exclusive nature because if you're trying to find a release of anxiety, a peace in your soul, a rest of your heart in anything other than a biblically defined way to relate to Christ, you are using something that will simply give you temporary relaxation, perhaps or cultural, temporary cultural relaxation for a moment, but not lasting, solid, stable peace. Notice that Jesus alone is the source of peace. Do you see that in verse 16? Now made the Lord of peace. God is the true source of all peace. In other places in the Bible, it is... Paul actually refers to God as the God of peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Romans 15.33, Romans 16.20, 2 Corinthians 13.11, Philippians 4, nine. all those verses refer to God as the God from which peace comes from. Peace comes from God. But here, he doesn't just say God in general, he says the Lord. 22 times in this letter, This word, the Lord, is mentioned, and all 22 times it refers not to God the Father, but to the Son. This is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord from whom peace finds its source. He is the Lord that is the source of all peace. You will not find it in other people. You're not going to find it in other relationships or circumstances. You're not going to achieve it medically. The earth is not going to produce peace rightly relating to Jesus through what he has done in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and when he returns, that is the only source of real, lasting, stable, solid, heart-rejoicing peace. So if you find somebody who's telling you that you can have peace, you can achieve peace, if you'll simply do, if you'll simply follow What should you do? Well, one, watch your pocketbook. I bet it's gonna cost you something. They've got a remedy that probably is gonna take some money. And just know you're probably listening to a voice that's been deceived. And whether they know it or not, they're deceiving others by saying, you know what, you can have peace if you just did X, Y, Z. And that X, Y, Z isn't defined by Jesus. I don't mean in addition to him, alongside of him. I mean he alone is the source of real peace. Let the peace of Christ, Paul said in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what we need. Think of relationships. Relationships the one who reconciles embattled people groups is the Lord Jesus himself. I think of a passage in the book of Ephesians that I think is somewhat relevant today when Paul discussed the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and the embattled nature between Jewish people and Gentile people. Where are we ever going to find peace in those embattled relationships? whether that be ethnic disturbance, whether it be religiously driven kinds of disturbance, where do you find that? Ephesians 2. You remember these verses? Verse 14. He himself, Jesus Christ himself, is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the saints and God's household. How did he reconcile Jew and Gentile? Through the gospel that comes through Christ that brings about peace. That's the foundation for all harmony in every relationship is the lordship of Christ through what he's accomplished on the cross applied to the way you think about others. No peace until that happens. It won't be peace. The world is never going to find peace outside of what the salvation of Jesus actually accomplishes. Why? What disturbs our peace? Sin. Sin disturbed our peace originally in Genesis chapter 3 between us and God, and it certainly disturbed the peace between Adam and Eve, and it certainly dis- dis- uh, disturbed their peace with the rest of the world. Sin did that. What is the one remedy to sin? The gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no remedy to cultural agitation, relational agitation, internal agitation outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ being applied to the way you think about everything. That's the key to peace. I mean, when Jesus' birth was announced, do you remember what the angel said in Luke chapter two, verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. What brings peace among men? The Messiah only. The Messiah. Every other quest for peace outside of the Messiah is a placebo. Makes you think you have something. Makes you feel like you might be peaceful. But it doesn't really cure sin. It doesn't cure what agitates us. Jesus is alone the source of real peace. He is also the sovereign over peace. That's why this phrase calls him the Lord of peace. He governs peace. He's the sovereign. He has the right to rule over how and when peace is applied over every element of our society and our relationships and our heart. He determines when peace will actually rule on the earth. Listen, if your expectation is that if we could just achieve the right people in political office, we'd have peace, you're not reading the Bible. You're not understanding sin. You're not understanding who Christ is or eschatology. Now, certainly we can find some kind of, perhaps some kind of tranquil way to live at times with one another, but we're not going to call it lasting, biblically defined peace. He's the Lord over peace. This is why Isaiah chapter 6, when it predicted the coming of the Messiah, referred to him as the Prince of Peace. He rules over the application of peace. I hope that you do vote your conscience, your biblically informed conscience. But no politician, do not put your hope in them. They will not achieve peace. Uh, Presidential retreats with Middle East leaders. We, We might get someplace where we're laying down weapons for a while, but we're not going to achieve peace. You haven't solved sin. You haven't solved the sin and its expression that has biblical import. He's the sovereign over peace. He's also the dispenser of peace. Do you see that in in our verse? He's the dispenser of peace. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace. He must give it. He must give peace. In fact, In this text, the first word in the Greek text is the word himself, as if to emphasize Jesus, and Jesus alone is the one who grants peace. No one else, nothing else will give you peace. He must grant it. That comes from being rightly related to God through him. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, What is the result of justification? What is the result of being found acceptable to God because of Christ? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the fundamental problems of our world, isn't it? We think our problem is with each other. We think our problem is human. Our first problem is between us and God that we don't have peace with him. That's why we have to have justification. It deals with sin, which corrupts our harmony. So justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone actually gives us peace, tranquility, harmony, good order between us and God. When the Lord Jesus was coming he was predicted that he would be one Luke 179 to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace listen to what Jesus himself said and think through this how emphatic is Jesus about this John fourteen twenty seven. peace I leave I leave with you My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What? What did Jesus do in his work on the cross, his ascension to heaven, his ruling over all things until he comes back? What does he give to us? Peace. Not the kind the world gives. The world has all kinds of answers to peace and the alleviation of anxiety. The quelling of all the disturbances. No, not that kind of peace. I give you the kind of peace that you don't have to be anxious over. That you don't have to fear in life. That's pretty profound, isn't it? He gives peace and you know you have peace in Christ when your heart is resting in what scripture has told you and you're rightly relating to God in him and you see everything as he sees it, he's giving you a peaceful heart. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. What's that last phrase? You know it, don't you? I have overcome the world. I've come to give you peace. If you live in the world, you live the way the world and society thinks, you're going to have agitation, anxiousness. It's not going to make sense. You're going to have expectations that are unmet. But I've overcome that. In me you have peace. He has to give peace if we experience peace. He's the dispenser of peace. Let me show you something else. Jesus is the sufficiency of peace also. He's the sufficiency of peace. What do I mean by that? Well, again, verse 16, May the Lord of peace himself, watch these words, continually constantly or literally in the greek at all times all the time grant you peace and notice this next phrase in every circumstance that is a bold statement what an incredible prayer May the Lord who governs peace and is the source of peace and the only one who give peace give you that all the time in everything. So that's, that's just not possible. It's not possible. It is possible to the degree that you live under the lordship of Christ. It really is And what does it mean to live under the Lordship of Christ? What's agitating your soul right now? What's agitating your relationships, your marriage, your workplace, whatever it is? What does the Lordship of Christ say about that? Does your heart embrace it? You say, well, that doesn't change the circumstances. It changes your response to the circumstances, doesn't it? changes how you think about it, how you see it, what you do with it. You can be embattled and have a peaceful heart you could have everything around you looking like it's caving in and you can rest because you know who is sovereign you know who is in control you know what he is accomplishing you know what his intentions are you know what he's going to do when he returns if you die in him you have no concerns or worries he's the sufficiency of peace Let me give you a few circumstances in which the Bible talks about what this looks like. Listen to these passages, just jot them down. Don't try to turn to every one, but just jot them down. Romans 14, 17. This is so profound. The kingdom of God, that is the rule of the gospel, the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace And joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is not determined by your diet. It is not determined by what you indulge in or what you abstain from. That's Romans 14. It's determined by what He says is righteousness. It is determined by what He says is joy in the Holy Spirit, not in mundane things of this earth. Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We live by pursuing what helps people rightly relate to God and that alone creates peace. We pursue the things that make peace. Even in an embattled marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, that fits some of you you're married to a a spouse who does not trust the gospel does not believe in Christ and you might think well maybe maybe I'm just going to be quiet well then how will they hear the gospel and find the peace of God well if I say something it agitates well I'm not saying say things in order to agitate but say what would bring peace Well, maybe I should just get out of the marriage. No, do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that actually addresses this? This very issue? In verse 15, it says, If the unbelieving one leaves, talking about an unbelieving spouse, if they leave, let them leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has actually called us to peace. Meaning, in that context, stay there, live out the gospel, show the gospel, show the unbeliever the gospel, so that you are establishing biblical peace. If they leave, they leave. You stay and show them the gospel. That's pretty practical. Even in our church gatherings, Our church gatherings are not to be defined by things like rampant speaking in unknown languages across the congregation that everybody can't understand or everyone just doing whatever they want to do and singing a song and preaching a sermon and doing whatever they want to do at a given time. That creates confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, in light of all of that, God is not a God of confusion but of peace as in all the churches. 1 Corinthians 14 is all about establishing a kind of edifying order in the church which brings peace. It's a gospel-oriented peace. What's the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit? What is the evidence that you actually have the Holy Spirit? It's not speaking in tongues. It's not the ability to heal. But the fruit of the Spirit is Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, what? Peace. You want to know if the Spirit's present? Do you see gospel-centered peace? When we walk worthy of the gospel and we live with each other in a gospel-defined way, Ephesians chapter four says we are being diligent, verse three, to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Peacemakers are not people who can find peaceful ways to exist on their own. Peacemakers as Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5 are those who take the gospel and apply it and pursue it in all the relationships of their life. God-centered kinds of peace are the ways that we're to pursue relating to each other. In fact, we could, we could go so far to say this, where sanctification, biblical sanctification doesn't exist, peace won't exist. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 pursue peace with all men what do you think he means by that just don't get in arguments no pursue the application of god's peace his gospel with everyone and the sanctification without which no one will see the lord no sanctification no peace no peace it's probably the absence of what is sanctifying there's no peace where there's no biblically defined righteousness james 3:18 The seed whose fruit is righteousness, listen to this, the seed who produces righteousness is sown, it's planted in peace by those who make peace. Where you're trying to establish the gospel and you're a gospel defined person and you try to relate to people according to what God has said about your relationships. You're going to find righteousness. How about one of the most important verses in the New Testament about the practical application of gospel peace? Philippians 4, verse 6. Listen to this impossible command. Be anxious, fill in the blank. What comes next? For a few things for some things, except where I can't help it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. What does that mean? It means I'm appealing to God according to his word. I'm seeing everything as from him, so I'm thankful. I'm interceding about everything going on around me because I know he is the key to its preservation. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and then what begins to happen when you rest that way in him and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will protect, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus so brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. That's all gospel-related ideas, isn't it? And what's the result? And the God of peace will be with you. God's peace Founded, is founded upon a reconciliation with God that seeks to establish reconciled relationships with others by applying the effects of the gospel to our hearts, our outlook, our interactions. In other words, peace is all about Jesus and where the lordship of Jesus reigns, that's where we begin to find peace. Where you don't find peace, you will find the absence of of the application of the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does that have to do with applying the Bible? It should be clear. I just went through all of these passages that started touching on all these practical issues of life in which the outcome is peace. That's what Paul is praying for. He wrote these three chapters about the opposition you face, the instruction that has been poor that you have started believing and the isolation that you're seeing among other Christians and he's saying now I've told you what God has said about these things now I'm praying that the Lord of peace will give you true gospel peace in the application of everything I've just said. To pursue the Lord of peace is to pursue the application of his word to everything. Your expectations, your outlook, your thinking, you say, well, you've said that. I have to say it over and over. Over and over and over. You know why? We all keep forgetting. We keep forgetting. You want peace? The United Nations is not going to do it. It's not. This November is not going to accomplish it. Or next November. November. It's just not gonna happen that way. Aromatherapy is not gonna give you peace. It's not. It's not gonna gonna do it. You might be relaxed, but you're not gonna have peace. Or, Or whatever else. Whatever else. Now, I mean, you laugh, but I hear that. I hear people say, if you wanna get rid of your anxiety, do. I'm like, really? That doesn't solve the heart. Pursue the Lord of peace. See, I see why you spent so much time on that one because the rest of these are easy here. Well, that's that's just the first admonition of how to apply the scripture. Let me give you a second one. Find it in the last part of verse 16. Seek the Lord's favor. Seek the Lord's favor. Where do I find that? That last phrase of verse 16, the Lord be with you all. Again, it's a prayer for the Lord to be with all of you and again the, the word Lord is a reference to Jesus who is sovereign over all things may the Lord Jesus be with you be with all of you now what does Paul have in mind when he talks about the Lord being with you isn't the Lord with everybody all the time isn't he an omni present God well that's true Where can I go from your spirit, Psalm 139 verse 7 says. Where can I I flee from your presence? You're everywhere. So he's not talking about the omnipresence of God. That's not what he's praying for. You don't have to pray for something that already is like the omnipresence of God. So it's not his actual presence that he's referring to. to. He's talking about here what we could define as his omnipresence affirming presence his affirming presence his favorable affirmation of your actions, your life that's a common phrase in the Old Testament this is actually something the Old Testament talks about a lot it's actually a a way that people would greet one another may the Lord be with you What do they mean by that? They mean, may the Lord's favor rest upon you. Not just may his presence be, his presence is everywhere. May his affirming, favorable presence be with you. Genesis 26, three. God said, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. What does that mean? Well, he's already present, but what does it mean? I'll be with you in order to bless you. You'll have my favor. Genesis 31.3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. Well, he's always with him. No, I'm going to be favorably with you. I'll give you success. Genesis 48.21, Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land. What does that mean? He's going to be with you in such a way that shows his favor to bring you back. What did God say to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 12? Certainly I will be with you when you go to Pharaoh. What does that mean? I'm gonna give you success. My favor is going to rest on you. We could go on on and on through the Old Testament. There's, There's many others we could go to. For God to be with you is for you to experience his hand of favor. You see the idea? In all of these instances that you are facing, May God be with you. May he give you his favor in these circumstances. Like what? Increased opposition. When people in society keep rising up and it seems like they only single out Christianity. I mean, there's other religions that have really bad applications. Have you noticed? That really do awful things to relationships and people, but we we seem to get singled out. Increased opposition. May the Lord be with us as we trust in God's ultimate vindication, as we trust him to guard our hearts, as we walk through these these waters, no matter what they may bring or what may happen, may God's hand of favor rest on us so that we won't respond inappropriately, but biblically and our witness be clear where there's all kinds of bad teaching that's going on, like what was happening in this church in Thessalonica, may the Lord be with you so that you don't misinterpret what's going on and therefore respond inappropriately, but have confidence and stability and not be moved by everything that's happening in the world. And when you're challenged to really love people in hard ways in the church, when you have to apply the Bible as if to confront someone like they had to in chapter three, may the Lord be with you. May his hand of favor rest on you going to a brother or sister, having a hard conversation with them and appealing to them on gospel terms. May the Lord's favor rest on you in that. That's what he's praying. This is how you apply the Bible. Are you actually seeking to do what the Bible says and then seeking then to find the favor of God? You say, well, I'm not sure the Bible's going to work in this situation. Then you're not seeking the favor of God because he's not guaranteed blessing and favor on something other than what he has said. What has he said to you? That is where he shows his favor. But it's so hard, I can't see how it's going to work. Do it. Pursue it. Seek it. Watch him work it out. Pray that he will show his favor in these hard applications of the word. That's what Paul is doing here. Seek the favor of God. That's that's how we apply the word. Let me give you a third admonition to apply the scripture. See, they go fast now. the third affirm the scripture's authority affirm the scripture's authority look at verse 17 i paul write this greeting with my own hand and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter this is the way i write he's not asking them by the way to pay attention to his penmanship look how bad i write it's obviously me writing it i mean that's that's what i would do you see how bad i write And someone said, yeah, I love getting your, I know why you write so messy. It makes me spend more time reading your birthday card. You know, no, that's not why, I I just, I'm bad. If someone else wrote it, you would say, that didn't come from Brett. Now we know that from other places in the New Testament, we glean that Paul used someone else oftentimes to actually pen his letters. He would tell them what to write and they would pen them, an amanuensis. And it could have been Silas, it could have been Timothy in this instance that they're perhaps writing that down. But what Paul would do at the end of all of his letters is he would record the final greeting, which is verse 17, all of it with his own hand. So they're reading the letter and they do see the penmanship change. It changes and he writes it in his own handwriting. Why would he do that? Well, we already know back in chapter two, verse two, that there were people who were disturbing them by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from Paul, right? So he's saying, no, no, I'm writing this with my own hand. You know this is from me. So this is a suggestion that this letter has authenticity. It's really Paul. But friends, I don't think that what he's after when he's trying to help them see that it's authentic is that he just wants them to know it's really Paul writing this. The implication is, if it's really Paul writing this, then it has authority. Who is Paul? An apostle, a representative of Jesus Christ. When he writes in the name of Jesus Christ, it's as if Christ is speaking. For him to be authentic and say, everything I've written in this letter, that I've actually written down in this letter, is under the command of Christ. It's really me as the representative of Jesus Christ then you have a responsibility to obey it, to affirm everything in the letter as if it has the very authority of Jesus. I mean, that's why he could say back in verse 14 of chapter 3, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. How do you say that if you don't have Christ's authority? So yeah, this is authentic. It's really me writing, which means obey what is written. The reality is we all follow what we're convinced is an authority. We follow what we're convinced is an authority. And that's that whole debate between science and scientism. Scientism tries to take ideas of science and baptize any theory under it just because it has authority. But is it really science, factual, actual observations that bear out over time? That's a different story. But if something's authoritative, we tend to follow it. If you don't think the government has authority, what do you do? Speed, disobey, do what you want to do. If you think you have authority, you disregard others. You do what you want to do. When your children don't think you have authority, we know how that goes, don't we? If you think the Bible has authority and you go find another source to put a, alongside of it, what have you just said to the authority of the scripture? What have you just said about the authority of that other source? So when it comes to something like what it means to live a life that is godly, what is the authority we have? 2 Peter 1.3 Remember 2 Peter 1, 3? Seeing that his, God's divine power has granted to us, listen to this, this is a bold, bold statement. God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that is required to live a godly life is found in one place. He says, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, that's salvation, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. What are those? Discoveries by science? No. Natural revelation? No. Special revelation. The scriptures, the precious promises of God are what we find in the written revelation and they are sufficient for all life as to how it is to be lived in a godly way. I do not have any other need for any other source to tell me how to live in a way that is God-centered other than the scriptures. That is the sole authority. There might be other voices that interpret it correctly, but the authority is still the scriptures. All scripture, that is the written revelation is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. If you think the Bible is authoritative, you will follow what it says and what it addresses regarding godliness for every area of life. Now, if you don't, You'll find other voices of authority and it will diminish the authority of Scripture and every, listen to what happens, every time we try to appeal to, rest on, trust in another source of authority, we diminish the work of Christ as well as the authority of his word. We don't think it's enough. I need something else with. And watch the world. They're always trying to bring natural revelation up to the same level as special revelation that is the scripture they'll say all truth is God's truth you ever heard that all truth is God's truth listen not all that is true is sanctifying truth alright there are true things that are not covered in the Bible all that is required for sanctification is found in the scriptures alone so Bible, again, we, we use this illustration. No, it doesn't teach me how to change the tire, my flat tire on the side of the road. It just addresses my attitude as I do it, right? It's the sanctification issue. I, I don't need the Bible to teach me how to change the tire. I need the Bible to say, you need to think about your circumstances in light of God and Christ right now. There's a fourth admonition that we find here in applying the scripture in these last comments. The fourth one is found in verse 18. Rely on the Lord's grace. Rely on the Lord's grace. I know, friends, I know it's easier to stand behind a pulpit and tell us what to do. It's really hard because I I then know I've just said what to do and then I have all of these people that expect me to do it too. Like, my whole family is going to be saying, I think you said in the sermon this morning, like, it's hard. It's hard to apply it. It's not going to be easy. In fact, it might almost look impossible. I do think there are times when you're staring at certain circumstances and you just cannot see how this is going to change. You rely on the Lord's grace. Now, I want you to look carefully of how Paul ends his letter. You see, well, it's a normal way he ends every letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Right, it is. Pair that with the way he began his letter. You go back to chapter one, verse two. What does he say in one, two? Grace to you. And what does he say at the very end of it? Grace be with you. What, what is the grace that he's asking to be with you, be, to come to you? It's likely the undeserved, unearned truth of the letter. That is the grace of God that is being brought to you. Grace to understand the truth, grace to apply the truth. It is this grace that we haven't earned, we don't deserve to be given truth. And at the end of the letter when he says, may this grace that has come to you now in this letter, may now this grace of God, this undeserved enablement be with you that might be a good way to understand what he means by the grace of God being with you is it is an undeserved unearned enablement to now do what he has brought to you in the word and it's only by God's unearned undeserved enablement that we're actually going to do what he's called us to do I can be motivated, I can be charged up, I can be ready to storm the world with obedience. And then I hit Monday morning, I'm like, what just happened? Where did that go? That's right, rely on the grace of God. He will enable you. Have you ever noticed, you think about in your mind, what if this terrible unbelievable thing happened I lost my family I lost all my my material possessions and you think through. I just don't know if I could go through that well thankfully God isn't asking you to determine that right here and now but when you go through it guess what he provides for you as you go through it enabling grace to obey what he has said this is why you build up the reservoir of truth in your heart By reading the word, meditating on the word, thinking on the word, as you're going through life, you're building up the reservoir of truth for the time that you actually go through the trial and you have to dip into that reservoir and use it and God then enables you to apply it. If he doesn't grant his gracious enablement, we'll succumb to all the opposition. We'll believe every false word. We'll never love in hard ways. So, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. So as we finish the book, we need to ensure that we're applying this book. We're not leaving eschatology, by the way. Uh, next week, I'm going to give kind of an overview of what the Bible says about eschatology. We'll have a couple of weeks where some other brothers are going to be teaching us. Then we're going to jump into the greatest eschatological book in the Bible, and that's the book of Revelation. And so you say, oh no. This creates all kinds of debates and discussion. No, listen, I think you will find that your heart will be more enraptured with the glory of Jesus Christ by studying that book than perhaps any other book of the Bible. It is all about Christ. We are going to get to emphasize and exalt Christ. But it is eschatological. But it is telling us what should we as the church think about Jesus as the end draws near. What should our hope look like? It's going to sound like 2 Thessalonians. You do know there's a reason why we've been studying these letters. It's all ramping up for us to see that Beautiful, majestic picture of Christ in his return which was written by the way to the saints who originally received it so that they would not misinterpret their surrounding circumstances and they would appropriately wait for Christ to come and they would persevere in the faith as they expect him to come. And it paints the most majestic picture of Christ to fuel your heart to appropriately expect him. That's why we're going there. And as we do, keep applying the word to your heart. Listen, if you're just gonna get into Revelation to have debates and discussions and arguments, you know what you won't do with it? You won't apply it in this way to your heart. Which is what we wanna do. Now let's pray for God's grace to help us. Father, thank you again for our time of study in the word. We pray that we will pursue peace that comes only from you. The favor of your hand over our striving to apply the truth of scripture. Help us to affirm that your word has ultimate authority, not our thinking and not other voices. And Lord, I pray that we will Appeal to and trust in your grace. The world around us is challenging. So many ideas on what's going on. It's hard to live out the truth with each other. May we know your peace, have your favor, under your authority and by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, let's stand together.